You are listening to Radio Ramadan 365 Podcasts. Assalamu alaikum, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Radio Ramadan. This is Late Night Live and this is Niaz. It's great to be back. It's been such a long time. Um, I'm just hosting myself, but I've got two wonderful guests today, Dr. Nazim Ghori and we have Professor Jason Gill as well from Glasgow University. Um, two very, very important people who are uh, doing a lot of work behind a topic that you know we discussed last year. Um, so this show's topic is going to be about uh, why do South Asian people get more diabetes? It's, it's such a prevalent um, issue. And I think we don't realize how important it is for us to deal with it um, and how to treat it, etc. But what I'm going to first do is I'm going to introduce um, Professor Jason. How are you? Welcome back. Hi, Niaz. Great, great to be back. I think it was probably a couple of years ago that I was on. Um, yeah, so re really delighted to be here and um, looking forward to an interesting chat. Absolutely. Um, and I've also got Dr. Nazim Ghori. Hi, welcome to the show. Hi, Niaz. How are you Pleasure to have you both. Um, how have you been uh, in since this period as well, Nazim? Um, it's been a crazy pandemic as well. Yeah, I think, I mean, the reality is COVID isn't going to go away. It's about learning to live with it. Uh, but uh, I think there's always going to have to be a common sense element in terms of what you do and how you do it. So uh, I'm just um, kind of going with the flow. I think the reality is, is that when you work in the NHS, uh, because of all the kind of rules you have in place in terms of isolation and things, it really takes a hit uh, in terms of your staffing levels. And you start to realize, well, hang on a sec, if COVID isn't as severe as it is or as it was, uh, maybe we should be a bit more pragmatic with the rules because the reality is patient care suffers when we don't have enough staff to do our job, but that's a different talk for a different day. <laughs> Absolutely. Sounds like, you know, you, you've been through quite a serious time in terms of uh, what's happened. It's not a laughing matter at all, unfortunately. But hopefully the worst is over now. And um, it, it is a, a serious topic that we have today. But before we jo join that one, um, uh, Professor Jason, um, I, I like the fact that uh, you're into cycling and uh, I believe you've got a in new incomer. Um, Camino is, is its name, isn't it? So is this your gravel bike? Have you been using it much? Yeah, it's been great. I mean, it's the, do you know, I've been riding my bike for 40 something years and this is probably the best bike I've ever had. Um, gravel biking is, is, it kind of takes you back to being 10 years old when you just sort of play, play, playing in the park on your bike. It just like, I just had a grin on my face every time I've ridden it. So if, you, if you've got a road bike or a mountain bike and you don't have a gravel bike, I'd, I'd thoroughly recommend getting one. It's the most fun you can possibly have. Brilliant. I, I know Dr. Nazim also has a bike. I think I, I love that both of you are into sports and fitness. And that's why you're both here today. So, you know, we're going to explore that. I am known as a bike whisperer, as in I try to help a lot of people get onto bikes, get into some form of sports and fitness. Um, so let's start our discussion today. Um, and, you know, why are... Why is this South Asian community of ours um, so prevalent to diabetes? Who would like to start? Yeah, so thanks, Nancy. So, so I guess, I guess the what, what do we know? So 
if you're South Asian, you've probably got three to four times the risk of developing diabetes compared to if you are white European. Um, and, and we've been doing some work so with, with, with Nazim and um, Professor Naveed Sattar for, I don't know, more than a decade now, probably probably 15 years or so, to try and understand understand why that's the case. Um, and and there's, a, there's a number of different things which are probably happening together. One thing that we... We, we think is probably not the case, at least from the evidence we have so far, is it probably isn't a genetic difference. So when you look at the studies looking at genes which um, predict risk of diabetes, what we find is if you look at South Asian populations and populations of white European descent, um, you've got the same prevalence of the genes which, which increase risk. So you don't have more of the genes which increase risk of diabetes. And the effect of those genes on diabetes risk seems to be about the same. So it's not an obvious genetic factor. Um, there might be a factor around early life events. So there, there is a hypothesis that what happens to you in early life, so before you're born, when, when, you're, when you're in utero, and also in the early years of life, can actually program your body so that in, in later later in life in adulthood it changes your risk of disease and this might be things of having poorer nutrition when you when you are when you were younger which might which might um prime your body to sort of suck in all the nutrients possibly and, and mean that you put on fat more, more 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 readily so that that's a possibility again there's not super strong evidence on that and um, one of the things that we, we we're exploring is whether there's differences in the capacity to store fats safely between different ethnic groups. Because if we think about how we store fats, so fat is a fat is a fat is really really helpful. It's a store of of energy. It's a it's it releases hormones which which regulate your health. Um, but there comes a problem when you when you've got too much of it, and the fat that you store under your skin is perfectly safe. Um, what happens is if you um, if you fill up the fat stores under your skin. Um, too much, and you don't have any capacity to store fat safely under your skin, the fat starts to go into places where it shouldn't go. We call it ectopic fat. So this goes into what we call visceral fat. So this is fat which surrounds your internal organs and also goes into other places like in the liver um, and, and the pancreas, which is the organ which um, secretes insulin, which controls your blood sugar. And we've got some, we've done some work to suggest um, that South Asians probably start storing fat in the liver at much, much lower body weights than white Europeans. So for the same level of total body fat, South Asians appear to store more fat in the liver. And, and, and there is increasing evidence that fat stored in the liver is really, really important for tipping somebody over into diabetes. So for the same level of fat, South Asians appear to store more fat in, 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 um, in the bad places, really. Um, there's also a story around um, fitness. Um, um, South Asians appear to have, on average, I know you're very, very sporty and very active. On, on average, South Asians have a lower level of fitness, something we call maximal oxygen uptake. So this is the ability of your body to use oxygen to do work. If you have a high maximal oxygen uptake, you're good at running fast for long distances or cycling for long distances. So people that can run a 10K fast have a high level of fitness. And on average, fitness is a bit lower, about 20% lower in a South Asian compared to a European. Um, that's not saying every South Asian is less fit than every European, but I'm saying on average in the population, there is this, there is this difference. And, and that seems to be associated with increased risk of, of diabetes. Um, 
um, and we, 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 we've shown that. And Nazim did some, some really, really nice work that, that, he, that he can probably talk about it more in a, in a minute, which suggests that for a given level of physical activity, South Asians have lower levels of fitness. So if you get more active, you cycle more, you run more or, 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 or go to the gym more, you get fitter. Um, and, and that's true, whatever ethnic group you're in. It's true in South Asians, it's true, it's true in white Europeans, it's true in, true in black populations. But the level of activity that you need to do if you're South Asian to get the same level of fitness looks like it's a bit higher in South Asians than Europeans. So it means that being active is probably even more important than South Asians than, than, than Europeans um, to, to, um, to, to minimize diabetes risk. And there's a whole host of other things I can probably get into about ability to, to, um, to, to burn fat, but I'll, I'll, I'll let Nazim um, but, um, go, get in and, and talk maybe a little bit more about the work he's done on this. So, um, do you want me to come in the ass or do you want to ask anything else? Yeah, please. No, 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 please, please do. I think this is a very important, um, you know, in trying to get our um, audience to be serious about, um, you know, the work you're both doing, you know, have been doing for so many years now. So please, yeah. please go ahead. Thank you. So I think the, the, the point you mentioned is almost two aspects. One is we're less fit. Uh, I say we as being someone of a association background collectively. And then the other thing is that if you want to address level of fitness, you probably have to do more. Um, it's it's not all doom and gloom and that perhaps our cancer rates are a bit less uh, when you look at other aspects of disease and things. So it's like anything, some uh, your ethnicity or your uh, genetic pool may benefit you in some areas and maybe less advantageous than others, particularly if the environment manifests certain aspects of this, your genetic makeup. <laughs> so in relation to, for example, physical activity, it may be that for, say, if a European has to do 150 minutes to get a given level of cardiometabolic benefit, um, uh, as, a, as a South Asian male, you may, even have, you may have to do a good, you know, 90 to 100 minutes over of that. And collectively, if you combine men and women together, you're probably looking at about 60 to 70 minutes more on a week to get that metabolic benefit. Remember, as Jason mentioned, this is not for each individual. This is a collective assessment. So in, some individuals may vary in that and sit in that. There'll be some Europeans who have to do more, some citations that need to do less. But the general rule is you follow the advice and try and do the bare minimum that you're expected, that's expected of you, but probably try and do more. And I think within that as well, when you look at it, when you analyze the data, it's not even just being active. It's, how, it's in moderate to vigorous physical activity and kind of probably doing as much of that level of activity uh, even if it involves doing it in bursts of you know, 10 minutes or more. So you want to do those types of activities. So whilst you might say, I'm out walking 10 miles a day, but what pace were you walking at is very important to factor in. Walking is good for you, it'll help. But if you're walking at a pace, you know, where if you and I guys are walking and having a conversation, we're struggling to have a conversation and walk at that pace, that's probably the level you want to be at when, when it comes to the speed of walking, if you want to get the metabolic benefit we're talking about. <clears throat> so that's the minimum that you want to do. Likewise, if you're cycling, probably the same. You don't want to just kind of be leisurely cycling which is fine but if you want to get the benefit you probably want to go to a space where you know you and i are probably struggling to have a conversation uh and doing the physical activity at the same time okay okay um can, can i come back to um the visceral fat the ectopic um fats that go into different parts of the organs and, and um, body so this has been um you know, statistically significant, uh, and research is done now. But why? Why do agents get this uh, uh, more th and faster? What's? How, how do we understand this? Um, how can we understand this better? Yeah. So, so that's really interesting. So we don't we don't completely understand it. 
So it seems that in each individual, so some people, when they put on weight or, or, or get fatter, stay perfectly healthy. So they can be really, really big. So they can have a body mass index of, say, 40. They can weigh 130 kil kilograms and all their sort of metabolic variables are normal. So some people are very lucky. Whereas some people, they get to um, 80 kilograms and all these bad things start happening to them. Um, and it seems that diseases like diabetes occur when you are carrying too much fat for your own body's capacity to store fat safely. And that differs between different people. It's not fair that it differs between different people, but it does. And if you are somebody who's not able to store fat safely under your skin as well, you start putting fat into places that are um, dangerous at a much, much um, um, earlier uh, uh, earlier weight. And we've done some work where we try to understand the, the processes of making new fat cells within uh, and the process of the fat cells sort of growing and expanding. So we've done we've done a little bit of work with that with um, Dr. James McLaren did that for his for his PhD um, to try and understand what what's different in South Asians compared to the average European average South Asian, which which, which might influence that. Um, one of the things that James did, which was a, a really, really neat study, and Nazim was involved in this too, was we were trying to understand more about why gaining weight might do might be worse for you if you're South Asian compared to if you are white Europeans. So we got a we got some young, thin, fit white Europeans and young, thin, fit South Asians. So these are people who are on average aged um, 23 years old. Uh, body mass index of 23, so it's right bang in the middle of the normal weight. Uh, and what we did is we tried to get them to gain um, about five kilograms in body weight. So what we what we what we essentially did is got them to to drink fizzy drinks and eat ice cream and eat pizza for for six weeks to try and try and try and get them. So we gave them extra food. We did we did all the things that they're not meant to do to try and get them to gain weight. And, and what we did before and afterwards is we did some, some very detailed measurements. We put them in what we call an MRI scanner. So this is a scanner which measures the level of fat in your body, but also measures where it is. So you can actually measure all the fat on the inside um, as well as fat on the outside. You get this, this picture of your body. We, 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 we looked at the way that their body responded to eating food. So we fed, fed them a meal, and then we looked at the levels of um, sugar in their bloodstream, how they went up after meal, and insulin which is the hormone which controls your blood sugar levels and also the levels of fats, triglycerides in the bloodstream. We looked at how those, how, how, uh, what happened there. And we also, um, using a needle, took a little um, fat sample, a fat biopsy from, from their tummy to try and understand a little bit more about the fat cells. So we did this before, and then we got everybody to, over six weeks to gain these um, five, five to seven kilograms. And then we measured them again. And, and, and what we found was really, really interesting. So if you are a young, fit, lean European, so in your early 20s, normal body weight, and you put on five kilograms, nothing bad happens, right? So they basically have this capacity to get a little bit unhealthier and gain a bit of weight and metabolically remain healthy. Whereas if you're a South Asian and you're young, fit and lean, and you gain those five kilograms, bad things start to happen. So we saw that the increase in insulin resistance, so this is, um, insulin resistance is, a, is, 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 is saying that your insulin is working less effectively at controlling your blood sugar level, was three times as great 
in the South Asians compared to the to the Europeans for the same change in weight. So a five kilogram increase in weight if you're if you're if you're European, if you're young, fit male, doesn't do anything bad. But bad things start to happen if you're South Asian. So we're currently interrogating the data a little bit more to try and understand why that's the case. But it seems that the, the buffer that you've got to gain weight before you get metabolically unhealthy in a South Asian is much, much smaller than if you're in a white European. Um, it's not fair, but mm -hmm. that's the that's the biology and that's the reality. So it means that um, if you're if you're South Asian, you, you probably need to be even more careful about trying to to maintain your body weight and, and not put on weight as you get older, because that's one thing that happens to everybody. Your weight drifts up over time. Most people are, are heavier at the age of 40, 45 than they were at 20. And I think it's really, really important to try and minimize that gain if you're South Asian. Would you say, so So you would start worrying even if it's just a couple kilos of extra weight? So I think the important thing to understand with this is that it's, it's probably thresholds and set points. In the same way, you know, diabetes risk goes up as your BMI goes up far greater in a South Asian compared to European, it's probably because the set the definition of cutoffs for BMIs for white people isn't really applicable to people who have a South Asian descent. I mean, I have this conversation with Naveed a lot, and generally our organs are just that bit smaller. We're smaller machines. So if you're, use, if, if you're kind of using uh, the kind of exact same kind of, you know, the testing mechanism on a, on a South Asian European it might not be sensitive enough. So it may be rather than having a BMI of 25 as a cutoff for becoming overweight, BMI should be say 23, 23 and a half. So based on like, for example, uh, the study done by uh, James, you probably would have needed someone, a, a South Asian of a BMI of 21 compared to a, a European of a BMI of 23. You might have seen similar responses metabolically because you're in that, you're in a safer zone, you're more in the safer zone. With a BMI of 23, you're almost entering the danger zone. You're literally at the cusp. So part of it is that we're probably designed to be leaner overall. And a part of that just might come back to the fact that well, most of the people who have migrated from South Asia, access to food uh, is probably, uh, although now might be a bit kind of polarized, generally they have a better access to food. You're farmers, you've got another climate such that you've always got access to carbohydrates. You don't need to eat in store. You're always accessing food and the type of work probably you're doing is quite labor intensive. So you're burning what you're eating. So you, you're, you're make up 60, 70 years ago and what you did was a was uh, was was optimized based on your climate your genes etc whereas people perhaps of european descent hunter gatherers if you go back to i mean they're designed to store because food might not have been a bit few and far between to have harsh winters so their body is designed perhaps to reflect that and now what's happened is our environments are very similar in fact there's probably very little difference in fact it might be an argument to say that the environment in south asia is probably more uh, adverse than it is here because of, you know we, we have gyms here people are encouraged to cycle walk it's you know it's not as overcrowded so you can do it so what's happening is we're really seeing a big uh, jump in things because it's just the environment is not is geared uh, to, to not uh, to not it's not geared to our genes it might be i don't know over time that our genes may adapt differently but it might take 50 or 100 years before we see that but certainly for the now i think we're, we've got the, that legacy effect of where we're from and because of where we are now uh, we're seeing the adverse effects of a sedentary lifestyle uh, just purely based on the fact that we weren't designed to be sedentary. And, you know, the, the in terms of, you know, the variants that they've seen in type 2 diabetes as well, um, there's a complexity of how it's linked to um, the skeletal pancreatic uh, functions, you know, and our metabolism as well. So um, is there like... Um, 
this complexity uh, from what I tr I'm trying to understand from what I've read is the gene that's affecting the insulin production in the pancreas overlaps with the gene affecting the use of insulin in the muscles. So that... So there's, yes, there's, lot, there's lots of genes, there's lots of genes yeah. that are involved. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I guess, I mean, you raise a very important point here because there's, there's, there, there's, two, there's two things which need to happen to get somebody to develop type two diabetes. So let, let's let's go back to sort of the basics. So when you, when you eat food, what happens, which has carbohydrate in, um, the carbohydrate causes your blood sugar levels to rise. And then what happens in response, um, there's signals which go to, um, which stimulate the pancreas to secrete a hormone called insulin. And what that insulin does is it brings your blood sugar levels down. So what happens when you're insulin resistant is um, the insulin doesn't work so well at bringing your, your blood sugar levels down. So in response to the same meal, the pancreas has to work a bit harder, secrete more insulin, and that, so a greater amount of insulin is needed to bring your blood sugar levels into normal range. So that's what insulin resistance is. And on average, South Asians are a bit more insulin resistant than, than, than white Europeans. So in response to, to, so to keep blood sugar levels under control, South Asians' pancreases need to work a bit harder and secrete more insulin. And the reason for the, the, that is um, um, aspects to do with how well the muscle can actually sense insulin. And that's, a, that's a, a, a topic that we can maybe come back to. But as long as your body's able to keep secreting insulin, you're not going to get diabetes. You, 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 you will increase your risk of other conditions like heart disease, um, even if you control your blood sugar, but you're not going to get diabetes. But what actually ticks you over to getting diabetes is your pancreas being unable to keep secreting this high level of insulin. And there, there is some evidence now um, that the beta cell capacity, so the, um, the, the, um, the ability of the beta cell to produce insulin, um, might be a little bit lower in South Asians. So you've got two things happening. One is the amount of insulin you need to secrete might be higher because the muscle is more resistant to the effect of insulin. And the second is the capacity to produce the insulin that's needed is lower. Um, and, and those two things are regulated differently. And I think there's now increasing evidence that this ability to actually produce the insulin might be different between ethnic groups. And, and some of this might be related to these early origin effects I talked about, because if, if when you're developing, you've got poorer nutrition, um, your pancreas might be a little bit smaller and therefore its capacity to, to, to secrete insulin at the high levels might be, might, might be reduced. So this is stuff that, that that's, that's being explored. And so there's, there's kind of, there's two, there's two things that we can try and do. There. We can try and think about what's happening with the ability to, to secrete insulin and things to do with muscle, which is about how much insulin you actually need to control your blood sugar levels. Okay. Yeah, just come in there. I think this highlights as well that a lot of this work, for example, is being done in, in adults, young adults even. But if you look at the children data, look at the, the children, for example, how they go to school, walking versus say, cycling uh, or, and uh, say going in a car. You see that in the South Asian kids, they already have a, a lifestyle where they tend to be more likely to go in a car rather than walk to school. And if you look at their insulin their resistant levels there and things like that, they're already more insulin resistant. So how much of a, a burnout is already taking place from a very young age? 
be very interesting to see if they if they did a study that kind of follow these people up over you know two three decades. So we so by the time even if you say it's a young adult, you know a lot of the the effect or damage may be done from the young age, and it comes back to the thing that said in terms of like the way we are when like made up and what we were perhaps expected to do when we were young children compared to what we are doing. So I think there's a lot to be said about you know then and Jason will touch upon a sense giving the heritable aspect of life. We talk about genes, we talk about you know your genetic makeup inheriting things, but it's, it's kind of a heritability where you kind of replicate the behavior of the you know, the people that are raising you. Uh, so a lot so if you have if you are brought up in a way that you're taught to be active and you are active from a young age, then that we perhaps underestimate the role of that. It's easy to blame the genes and genes have a role, but the impact of what you do from a very young age and how you live your later life probably is a, is 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 a deal breaker for the majority of people to be honest yeah, yeah. That, that, that's very important so, uh, just following on from that point as is making so if your pancreas is going to have to work a little bit harder earlier in life right it, it, it it'll get burnt out more easily it's just like miles on a clock it's got a certain number of miles before it's gonna before before it's gonna sort of um pack in and if it's having to work harder earlier in life that's kind of uh, causing a toll which means that when you actually um, need the extra capacity as you get as you get a little bit older, it, it might not be it might not be there. So that's a that's a very um, very, very um, good point from Nazim. I just want to touch on a move on to a slightly different point now, which is um, muscle. We talked about muscles' ability to um, um, use insulin. Um, um, use insulin to control your your blood sugar levels and that might be a little bit um different in, in south asians compared to europe um we have this evening if you've just come back to us uh, professor jason gill and dr nazim gori um, we're talking about diabetes it's a very important topic and just before we left off we we're talking about the beta cell capacity and i'm going to explain well the pancreatic beta cells are um, the endocrine cells that synthesize, store, and release insulin, the anti-hyperglycemic hormone that um, antagonizes glucogen, growth hormone, glucocorticosteroids, epinephrine, and other hyperglycemic hormones. And these maintain um, the circulating glucose uh, concentrations within a narrow physiological range. And the doctors were just saying that um, in Asians, it's much lower. So there was an important top, topic point that Professor Jason wanted to discuss. I rudely interrupted, so I'm going to say, please carry on. Thanks, thanks, Diaz. Um, so we're talking about so 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 um, your beta cells are what are the other hormone which sorry are the organ which which secretes insulin which controls your blood sugar levels. So insulin, which is secreted by the beta cells, needs to act on um, muscle. And what it does is it stimulates the muscle to take up sugar. And, and, and what we know is in terms of controlling your blood sugar levels, and diabetes is a disease which occurs when your blood sugar levels are too high. Simple as that. Your blood sugar levels are too high. That gives you diabetes. So 80% of sugar control in the body is in muscle. So muscles are really, really important um, organ for controlling your blood sugar levels. And this is why, and I think we're going to talk about this in a different program, um, the exercise and physical activity you do is really important because that helps regulate muscle. But one of the things that we, we, we found out is, on average, South, South Asians can have, have less muscle than Europeans. They've got, they've got less muscle, um, and, and, and that's important because if you think of muscle 
as being the sink which sugar goes into. If you have less muscle, you've got less capacity in that sink to draw the sugar out of the bloodstream. And we know that on average, South Asians have, have, have less muscle. And this seems to be one of the factors which, which relates to, um, to risk of diabetes. And another thing that's related to muscle and size of muscle is muscular strength. And one of the things that we, we've done some work on is looking at the, the strength on average in South Asian men and women and the strength on average in other ethnic groups. And what we see is on average, South Asians are a little bit less strong. Um, and, and this seems to um, be associated with risk of developing diabetes. So we know that strength, with the way we normally measure it in large studies is measuring grip strength. So you, you have a device um, which you basically squeeze as hard as you can and it measures your the strength of your of your sort of your your your, your hand and, and your arm muscles. Um, it's not the grip strength in itself is the important thing, but what happens is it the, the strength of all your muscles in your body is very highly correlated. So that if you have strong grip strength, you, you have strong legs and you have strong everything else. It's a it's a measure, simple measure of overall body strength. Um, and, and one of the things that we know with, with grip strength is that lower grip strength is related to higher diabetes risk. So people that are less strong have higher risk of diabetes. And on average, South Asians are less strong than white Europeans and also um, um, black Caribbean um, sort of people. So Jason, just to ask you a question there, was is that adjusted for the amount of muscle mass a human that the person has? And was that adjusted for anything to make it yep. comparable? So we can do, so we can look at it in two different ways. We can look at the absolute amount of strength, so how much how, how strong your muscles are, mm -hmm. and we can also do various adjustments. So we can look at the strength per kilogram body mass. So you can you can adjust it for body size, and either way, you, you see this difference. So, so, so a, bit like, a bit like our fitness data, that even when we adjusted for lean mass for our fitness data, we still showed those a difference just to make sure that it wasn't the fact it was less muscle then. So that's important yeah. for our listeners to appreciate that we do adjust for these things that we that already we're different in. Yeah. So thanks, Daz. That's a very so what it works. So you can do, either way. You see, you see, you see that difference. Um, so so what? So one of the things that we we did we did some um, sort of a, a, um, a, a statistical modeling type analysis. And you said, well, if you take every South Asian adult who has strength which is lower than the average, so lower than the fiftieth person out of a hundred, and you make them as strong as the average person, so you don't make them super strong. You just say. Everybody is less strong than average. You make them as strong as average. What you find is if you take, you, you would reduce the number of diabetes cases by four people at every hundred. So if you take a hundred people at South Asian, it's, it's about the same number in men and women. I think it's 3.9 in, in one sex and 4.2 in the other. And I can't remember off the top of my head which around it is, but about four. So you take, a, you take about a hundred South Asians. Right. And you'd get everybody who is less strong than the average person and you make them as strong as the average person. Out of that hundred, you would reduce the number of cases of diabetes by four, which is huge. So you'd reduce four cases of diabetes per hundred people if you get everybody who is less strong than the average and just made them as strong as the average. So we're not making people into super athletes, just making them just average. That would that would reduce that would reduce risk. I think that's I think that's a really really important thing. For, it's one thing that we maybe don't really think about. We talk about you become physically active, you ride your bike, you walk, you run. One of the things we don't really think about is we need making our muscles stronger. Is probably also going to have an effect on our risk of developing diabetes. 
So just to, to build on that, Jason, just to give people context, when we talk about taking tablets for different conditions, so we talk about taking cholesterol tablets, for example, or taking certain tablets for diabetes to um, kind of reduce your risk of something, we often talk about numbers needed to treat. Uh, and you might find that, you know, a lot of good tablets, we say you need to maybe have you know 25 to 30 people taking a tablet to get that benefit. This is exactly the same. So four in 100 is one in 25. So if someone is to offer you a tablet to do the same, you say that's a pretty good effect of the tablet uh, in terms of if you were to say this tablet reduce your diabetes risk by you know four and hundred people would get it. So the, so what we need to understand is that uh, from a number need to treat if you were to compare it to a drug, it's, it'd be like the equivalent of having a pretty good drug out there in the market. So this is how to help understand what Jason is saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, it it's it seems like uh, some you know very very great points. Um, and I wanted to add, because, um, you know, we're saying why, why are they getting um, diabetes? Why is there this high risk? And I had um, read, and, and I'm going to add to your point, so urbanization and modernization of society. So that's less walking, less biking, et cetera, and physical activities in, the, in Asian countries, but also here in the West. Um, and 50% of these adult men that they looked at in Asian countries, um, they smoke regularly, uh, which is associated with higher abdominal fat and a 45% increased risk of developing diabetes. Um, so it's these additional things people don't look at. It's um, another thing, white rice and other refined grains, um, which are linked to increased risk of diabetes, make a large proportion of uh, Asian consumption um, and energy intake. Um, unhealthy trans fats, uh, saturated, um, you know, palm oil, etc. Uh, and when, when I look at globalization, um, we have, we're in a fast food society. I often see articles talk about this and I've seen obesity rock through the roof uh, all over the world uh, since the eighties. I don't think people understand. I, I've, I've in the last six months and I'm not, not joking in the last six months, people who shouldn't have died have died uh, um, for various health reasons who are in their 40s. And I think that should be a wake-up call because I've seen about five to six people who passed away uh, and, um, and in the South Asian community that perhaps shouldn't. So it's, it is a major wake-up call, and that's why, you know, we've got you guys here. Um, and when I looked at... Um, one thing that you've mentioned, Professor Jason, is poor nutrition uh, when um, is not looked at in Asian countries like India. And newborns have a lower weight um, in India than uh, white uh, Caucasians in, in the West. And what you mentioned at the beginning, the first part of the show was that um, the environment at the beginning makes a massive impact um, and uh, one last thing I'm going to add is um, air pollution. Uh, they think that perhaps may also increase um, risk of insulin resistance uh, and diabetes. And that's globally. You know, we, we do have a pollution problem in the bigger cities. Um, what are your thoughts to some of these additions of why diabetes yeah, occurs? Yeah, so thanks. Yeah, so I think that's, that's, that's all really, really important. So... We live in this context of this environment which is changing. So the world that we, we live in now is very different from 
30, 40 years ago, certainly very different from 50, 60 years ago, where it's really easy to get access to very palatable food that tastes nice and and you kind of want to we're programmed to want to eat these foods which have high fat and high sugar that's because because we 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 our genes grew up in a time of scarcity so you, you we're programmed to want to eat those foods um and when they're highly available the natural thing is yep you want that you you always you always want to eat a donut when you see a donut there and if you, if you don't eat it you're cognitively thinking I shouldn't eat that. That's the reason that you don't eat it. You actually, you think, oh, yes, I'll eat that. But it, the only reason you don't eat it is it was probably not a good idea to have that and certainly not going to have the second one. So we constantly have this environment which is kind of pushing us to do things which actually give us pleasure and uh, our, our body, but, but, but are, are probably not, not the, best, the best for that. And, and so we've got this mismatch between what we evolved to do. We evolved where food was relatively scarce. We had to move around quite a lot to actually just do daily daily things to get our food, and we don't we don't have to do that now. And things have been made made easy for us. So that that's a problem around the world. The the, the, the case about pollution, it seems to be um, air pollution seems to be bad for almost every single body system. So it's it's just yeah. it's just bad news um, in the whole in the whole uh, across the board. And I know in in many cities in India. Um, because of urbanization, large populations um, and the need to create energy, there, there is a huge pollution problem. And this might be one of the things where lots of things align because we've got this climate um, crisis. So we need to sort of move away from fossil fuels, which actually are polluting. Um, we've got the, the energy cost um, issues now. Um, and, and so so what might happen over coming decades, I hope, um, is that all these things align and, and, and air pollution might drop. So that might become a little bit less of an issue in the future. This is me with, with, my, with my optimistic optimistic hat on. <laughs> one, of the th- one of the things that, that we see is that the, the, while these um, things about the change in our lifestyle, so we don't need to be as active, we, we drive our cars everywhere because people have them, they're more affluent, and, and we, we eat foods that taste nice, uh, but but might not be so good for us. While while these things are overall not good, there seems to be differences in how bad these things are for different people. So some people, like remember I talked about earlier, this person's 130 kilos and perfectly healthy. Some people are lucky enough to be able to get away with it, whereas other people are are are, are less lucky. And having this this poor environment has a much bigger adverse effect on their health. And unfortunately. The evidence looks like South Asians are one of these groups of people who, when you have this adverse environment, um, it has a bigger adverse effect. We, we show, I talked about this, the data from, from James McLaren's PhD showing that a, a five kilogram increase in body weight had a much bigger bad effect if you're South Asian compared to European. So we all live in this environment. Um, the, the consequence of those, this environment is, is, is different in different people. I mean, I know, for example, so for me, um, both my parents have type 2 diabetes. So what that means is I've got a, ni- a 90% lifetime risk of developing type 2 diabetes. So it's a really, really high risk. Um, so, so for me, it's really, really important that I try not to get too fat, try to keep active. And, do that. and, and it's more important for me to do that than somebody that doesn't have that family history. And, and it's exactly the same with, with different ethnic groups, um, that certain ethnic groups have to work a little bit harder because of the uh, of the um, sort of the, the, the cards that they were they were dealt biologically. 
Um, and, and I think being aware of that is really important because if you're aware of that, it gives you um, power and agency to actually do something about it. I, I'd much rather know that's the case and know I need to work harder than, 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 than not know and then have some adverse health conditions hit me and, and, and not being aware that I could have done something about it. Yeah, and, and just to come in, uh, just to kind of give, give a clinical slant uh, to it all, getting diabetes in and of itself is not the issue. It's getting diabetes at an age where you can develop complications that will impact your life in terms of either your ability to do things. For example, if diabetes affects your eyes and you need your eyes to drive or do your job and you have to take out of retirement or you lose your social mobility, or for example, you know, the risk of having a heart attack or a stroke, which potentially have fatal consequences. No, if someone says to you, look, you're, you're going to get diabetes, but you're going to get it at 70 say, instead of 40, most people would buy that. So I think you have to understand that diabetes will never go away. But if you're getting it at an age or stage in life where, you know, the complications don't really make a difference to you because by the time you get complications, your, your biggest risk of anything would be your age. Then that's what we're trying to explain to people that if you, if you can make changes in your lifestyle and live in a way that you don't get diabetes early, that has an impact on your, you know, your quality of life, your working life, then that's a win. I think if you're unrealistic in what we're trying to achieve, so you'll never get diabetes. And obviously that's not right. It's about uh, making expectations real. So as a clinician, what I'm trying to say is, I don't want you getting diabetes in your early 40s or even your 50s. But if you get diabetes uh, later on in life, that's less of an issue. So let's try and live life so that you can actually make the most of those years that you that really matter to you. And also you're not going to create a situation where you perhaps have disabilities or problems in, your, in later on in life where you want to, enjoy life uh, as well and reap the rewards of your hard work. Another thing that I want to come in with, and I'm going to be a bit controversial here, is that we've also talked and we've alluded to the fact that South Asia is perhaps not very good with carbohydrate, you know, maybe smaller engines burning out. There's probably a subtle public health message in terms of when it comes to physical activity and doing more that maybe the calorific content that we should be consuming in South Asia should be less. So for example, if you're saying 2000 for a female and 2500 for a male in general, maybe things should be tempered down by 10%, 15% because of that increased metabolic risk. Now, I'm bringing this out there to say, look, it's about thinking in terms of how we can make those you know, sustainable changes. So if somebody knows that they should be eating less uh, in the same way that they should be doing more, and that for them, they should be doing that, now hopefully the data will come out and support that in due course. Then what you're doing is you're, rather than kind of, kind of being reactionary to all, you're being proactive uh, to it. So for example, you know, if you tell someone these foods are bad for you, you know, you're, you're, if you lose your motivation to do something or you, you lose, or you say, well, what's the point? Then you're not going to engage. But if you say, you know, it's not about avoiding certain things, but it's doing less or having less of certain types of foods, but you can still have it. Like I say, with anybody, if it's all the calories and trying to uh, brought it as a headline, then I think there's, there's the way we package public health messages maybe needs to be looked at. So, for example, you say, two, you know, 1,500, 1,750 for a female, 2,000, 2,250 for a male, then that little deficit in calories, which will build up over time, is perhaps what we should be thinking about. So that's about, you know, it's achievable. If I tell you, Niaz, we'll lose five kilos in weight, you're going to give me two fingers. Uh, but if I say to you, Niaz, look, cut your calories by, you know, two, for you, the recommended daily amount is less, and this is what's expected of you and you and not only that but say your kids do that as well then you're you won't know any better so i think sometimes you have to think you know the long game as well as we start acquiring the data absolutely i'm i'm and in the next show um i will be you know discussing and bringing that out in terms of the diabetes and lifestyle because um, i did lose a lot of weight but we'll come back come back to that um in terms of you know you're you're um, you know, talking about 
you know, the, the whys, whys of diabetes. But it, it's like maybe you have to talk about the symptoms, like what can happen. Can you, Dr. Nazem, tell me a bit more what you see on a clinical level for the young ages? Like you, you mentioned uh, eyesight, et cetera, et cetera, maybe losing uh, a limb or something. I mean, I mean, what are the, some of the horrific things that you've seen that so, show people's understanding? So generally wise, you have to split your diabetes into the kind of the acute or the kind of symptoms of high blood sugar, which make you feel a bit unwell. So for example, if you understand that insulin is like a key, it's a key that allows sugar to enter muscle and fat cells. And without that key, the, the sugar can't enter, enter the cells. And what happens is as a result of it, your body behaves as if there's no glucose. And therefore it starts creating all these pathways in the body to try and raise the blood glucose levels because your muscles or whatever aren't getting it in, even though it's there, it's an accessibility thing. Um, uh, and when you're insulin resistant, you need more insulin to get the same effect. So if you imagine you have this initial insulin resistance state, which is what Jason talked about, and that you need more to get a desired effect. Then over time, because you're burning out, you just don't have enough to meet the demand. So um, when you're, so as you, if your body's compensating, or compensate to a degree, you won't know about it. But then when, if the, uh, if the compensatory mechanisms are being affected, then your sugar levels start rising. And when they get beyond a certain level, then you will start getting certain symptoms. And by and large, these symptoms are reflective of the fact that there's too much glucose in the blood, the glucose comes out in the urine, uh, with that it drinks extra fluid out, so you start, you start passing more urine, you get thirsty, you drink more, and despite doing all this, you're losing weight because your body is behaving as if there's no sugar, so it starts breaking down muscle and fat to get the energy. Uh, and as a result of that process, you start losing weight, you start finding that your, your muscle mass goes down, you become like a toffee apple, you can have uh, your, your legs get very thin, but you might not be losing much too much from your tummy. And um, you might find that your vision starts getting a bit blurry because your uh, your uh, lenses in your eye are, are kind of water-based and the sugar content affects you know, the diffraction of light and things like that. And these are symptoms that people will often kind of present with to their doctor. They might get thrush around the genitals because again, sugar is coming out in the urine and that residue is a breeding ground for fungal infection, for example. Uh, these are how you might initially present. Now, once you've got over the treatment of these initial stages by controlling the blood sugars through whatever means, combination of diet, lifestyle, tablets, or potentially even insulin initially, you then have the issue of the damage that the blood sugar can do to your, your insides, but you won't necessarily feel it. So if your sugar is sitting at nine or six, you probably won't feel a difference, to be honest, you won't know. But your blood vessels in particular, the very small ones that supply your eyes, your kidneys and feet will. And that's what happens when you look for complications, we're looking at this end organ damage from the, that these blood vessels supply. So for example, your eyes, the blood vessels in the eyes start getting affected. It might be you know, get a bit more wiry, they might get a bit narrowed. You might kind of get uh, deposits of cholesterol that might affect parts of your vision, your night vision, for example. When it comes to your feet, uh, there can be a dual aspect to things. So for example, the nerves that supply your feet, the blood supply to these nerves get affected. So your, your feet aren't as sensitive to feeling the ground ar around you. So you then, as a result of it, you might get an ulcer because you've stood on something, not realized it walked on a bit more, damaged your foot more. And these ulcers can get quite deep. And because of the sugar as well, they might be difficult to heal. And if they don't heal or the infection gets very deep or affects the bone or the blood supply isn't adequate for healing, you may have to lose that part of the limb or that limb. Uh, when it comes to your kidneys, for example, again, uh, the, the, the high sugar going through the kidneys can be have an, its own damaging effect to it. Then the blood supply to the kidneys as well. If that's impinged, so um, all, as a result of it, if, you're, if, you, if your kidney function starts declining, you're not able to filter out waste and dialysis becomes something 
to be that's quite real. In fact, the most again, one of the most premature causes of dialysis is actually diabetes, and about one in four to one in five people who are on dialysis uh, have diabetes. So it's, a, it's an unholy alliance. So this is why we're talking sugar. It's not so much the fact that you know at six or nine your blood sugar level you can feel much different. It's not that. Yes, if it's 16 or 17, you'll feel unwell, but it's that long-term effect of things. And that's why we are trying to prevent these things from happening. Thank you very much, Dr. Nazim, um, for that information. Um, I'm gonna um, pass it over to Professor Jason. Um, there's a wonderful Dr. Angus Sterling who um, will join us in the last episode, last show we're gonna do. And um, Dr. Angus Sterling is doing work in this field with Professor Jason. If you could uh, briefly let us know what he's doing and I'm gonna plug in his email address and uh, we'll do it again, because I think people should perhaps write in to him um, because we're, we're, you know, that you guys are looking uh, for help uh, from the community. So it's Angus, A-N-G-U-S dot Sterling, like the city Sterling at Glasgow, .ac.uk. So, Professor Jason, why am I plugging him? And uh, if you could tell us a little bit. Thanks, Diaz. So, so we're doing some work to try and understand a little bit more about why South Asians get more diabetes. Um, we're, we're really trying to focus on what is what's happening in skeletal muscle, in the muscle in your legs, and the muscle in your body, to 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 mean that the muscle is less able at taking up sugar. So we're doing we're doing a really interesting study where we're doing some very detailed metabolic measurements in we want to we want to study men we're only studying men who have um slightly higher risk of of developing diabetes but don't have diabetes and what we're going to do is do these very in-depth measurements within of of the way that the body um responds to insulin um we're also going to take um very small muscle samples from the leg to try and understand what's happening in terms of the, the genes and the regulation of, 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 of um, uh, diff different aspects of, of, of the muscle. And then what we're going to do is in half of the people, give them an exercise training program to see how we can improve these factors within the muscle. So it's a really important study. We're looking for um, South Asian men to take part. Um, we're gonna randomize people to either doing an exercise intervention or not, but it, um, it's gonna be for 12 weeks. But even if you're not randomized, you will still get an opportunity for the exercise intervention at the end. And I'm, and I'm guessing about the, the wrap up from Niaz. So, um, so thank you very much for, for, for having me and I'll pass over to Niaz to finish. Thank you so much, um, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening. Please remember, we will come back. We will come back for another show on diabetes and lifestyle with both of our guests. Um, it'll be coming probably the next day. Um, so thank you for listening tonight. Please um, return for our next installment. Have a beautiful and wonderful evening and look after yourselves. Allah is, Allah is. Thank you.